0: The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. From time to time, I try and think about what it's like when you attend a church for the first time and you're brand new. Uh, I try and remember what it's like to open a door or someone with a name tag, open a door for me and walk in and see a place I've never been in before and faces I'm not familiar with and wonder and ask the question like, do I belong here? Is there a place for me? Is anybody even going to notice me? Uh, Some of us, it's like, I don't even want to be noticed. I kind of just want to slip in and slip out. I try and remember what that's like because all the time at our church, we have people who are coming and they're new and they're asking those questions. And on the fourth time that I ever attended our church, back then it was called West Pines Community Church. It was September 8th. Yeah, throwback, September 8th, 2013. September 8th, 2013, and the reason I remember that that was my fourth time attending our church is because the next day I did something I hadn't done before, I wrote Pastor Roby an email. And I experienced that Sunday service, and at the time I was living in Gainesville, I was working at a church in Gainesville, and uh, my family was here, a part of this church family, and so I was home for the weekend and attended with them And it was just such an incredible Sunday. I I was blown away. I just had this sense that God was at work. And so I felt compelled to write an email. And so here's what I wrote. I wrote this, I hope your Monday has been enjoyable so far. Just wanted to email you guys and thank you for the great work you're doing in South Florida. Your ministry has had a profound impact on my entire family and I'm so very grateful. Yesterday was my fourth time worshiping at your church and every single time I've gone, it's been increasingly meaningful. The worship team did a fantastic job and the message was from God. I'm not that guy who has crazy dreams or dramatic supernatural experiences, but I will say that when I left yesterday morning, I left with an undeniable sense that God was at work in a special way at your church. So much so that I just had to email you guys to let you know, keep it up, praying for you guys, the rest of the staff and your church family. That was a couple years before I'd come on board and be a part of this church family. And I remember writing that email, sending it away, and the interesting thing is that was in the season where we as a church were studying through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters five through seven. And that Sunday was kind of a Sunday where we overviewed the entire Sermon on the Mount and gave this overarching picture of what this main teaching of Jesus is all about. And the next Sunday, interestingly enough, would be one of the more memorable Sundays in the history of our church. I wasn't here that Sunday. Some of you in this room or watching online, you maybe were, but that was the Sunday where we started Matthew chapter five, and we looked at verse three. It's the beginning of the Beatitudes, where Jesus begins to describe what it means to belong to his kingdom and to be his people. And I I hear the story of what took place on that Sunday. It was during the second service, and in the middle of the service, a storm broke out. And, And as the message is being delivered and shared, the storm is getting rowdier, and the rain is falling harder, and there's thunder falling, and it's almost as if with every statement that needed to be emphasized... Some of us in this room remember this, there was like these accents that were happening that thunder would fall at the point of where some truth is being delivered or a scripture is being read. And it was like this moment where God was stirring something and trying to get our attention. It was that week that our church felt compelled to begin a season of prayer and fasting to start seeking God, to pray and be diligent to seek him. And it was in that season, that stretch of time, that God started to give us words to articulate what we're truly after as disciples of Jesus. And so today, as we're in our origin series, on our way to celebrating our 20th anniversary as a church, it brings us to this moment where some of us, we were there, some of us just recently started becoming a part of this family. But this passage that we're about to study, Matthew chapter five, here in a moment, is a moment that in many ways defines who we are as a church, sets the tone for what we believe about what it means to be one of Jesus' disciples, or to use the Greek word we often use around here, one of Jesus' mathetes. And so what I want to do today is I want to take a look at this passage, Matthew chapter five, and we're going to look at that same verse that God used to so thunderously sow into the heart of our church. And we're gonna explore the significance of it and what it means for us right now. And so, if you have your Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter five, and we're gonna ask a couple questions of this passage. So let me set up the context. At this point in the story, Jesus has just begun his public ministry. He just started calling disciples to follow him, Uh, fishermen, they're out fishing, and Jesus says, hey, you follow me, and you follow me too. And so these guys start following Jesus as their teacher, as their rabbi, and they're his disciples. And Jesus starts going from village to village, proclaiming this message, repent. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Matthew in chapter 5, what we have here in this chapter is the first major block of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a long, large section. Chapters 5 through 7 contain this sermon that Jesus gave that is the most influential sermon and message ever delivered in human history. There's been more written about this sermon, more time spent studying this sermon than any other message ever in human history. It's shaped cultures and societies. It's where we get the golden rule from. Much of the language that we think is just kind of this cultural thing stems back to and draws its root from this sermon. And listen to how Jesus begins the sermon. So it says this in Matthew chapter five, starting in verse one. Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You're blessed. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus begins this Sermon on the Mount with these nine statements that are called Beatitudes. They all begin with the word blessed. That word blessed describes something significant, it describes happiness to the full, complete joy, total bliss, favor from God, the life we all want, blessed. It describes life under God's shalom, where everything is working right and where all is well, blessed. He says these different statements and describes the blessed person. And the audience that Jesus is speaking the sermon to is significant. In verses 1 and 2, we read that Jesus is there. He's on an unspecified mountain. And while he's there on this mountain, his disciples come and come near. And Jesus sits down and he begins his teaching. And his teaching is addressed to his disciples. But we're also told there's another audience that's listening. There's this crowd. You read through the gospels, these biographies of Jesus' life. There's always a crowd around. People who are curious, people who want to know who this Jesus is, people who reach out to Jesus and he meets with them and changes their lives. There's this crowd. And so, not unlike our Sunday gathering when we gather together, there's this group of people who come to gather, the te- gather to hear the teaching of Jesus, to hear the teaching of God's word, who are disciples, but there are also in the mix a crowd. Some that are a part of the crowd are there because they're a teenager and mom and dad made them come with them. Some are here and are a part of the crowd because a spouse kept inviting you and inviting you and inviting you to come, and so you have come and you're a part of a crowd. Others of us are here because a friend let us know and we're curious. Maybe we haven't been to church in a long time and we're just kind of giving it a shot. And so there are some who come and their disciples, they're here and they're saying, I'm in on this thing. I want to follow after you, Jesus. And then there's the crowd. And Jesus begins speaking the sermon to his disciples, but no doubt with the crowd in mind, knowing who's in earshot because he wants the crowd to know what does it mean to be a part of his family. What does it look like to be a part of his kingdom? And what we're gonna do in our time is we're gonna focus in on that first beatitude that we studied many, many years ago. Verse three, look with me again. The first beatitude that begins the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Who gets to experience that life that's full of joy and purpose a life that's at peace, a life that's full. Well, it's the poor in spirit. That word poor does not describe someone who's going through like some financial difficulties and trying to make ends meet and living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, This Jesus would sympathize with that, but that's not who he has in mind here. He's describing people who are in total poverty, This word here, this word to describe the poor, is a word that describes those who are utterly destitute. Among Jesus' disciples, they're fishermen. And so these fishermen, they would most definitely not be at the top of society. They did not make a whole lot of money, but they had a job. They had a means of providing for themselves. And Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to be blessed, you've got to be Poor. You've got to be. You have. You have to have a type of poverty, a type of bankruptcy. You need to be in this place where you take on the posture of a beggar, and throughout Jesus' ministry, this same word is going to pop up and be used to describe people on the streets that Jesus would come to and meet in their desperation, who had lost all hope and had nowhere else to run but Jesus. So Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor." in spirit you see jesus is describing a specific type of poverty that receives this blessing spiritual poverty what does that mean it's this sense that my my life before a holy god Before a perfect God that's spiritually speaking, I have nothing to offer him. I can't look to something or try and present something up to God so that God can bless me or give me something that I think I deserve. No, I must first embrace my spiritual poverty. And then he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, the kingdom of heaven, appears all throughout the gospels. And the kingdom of heaven is not so much about a location, It's not so much about a place. The kingdom of heaven describes what life is like when God reigns as king and when people treat him as king. The kingdom of heaven is when justice and righteousness and God's ways of mercy and goodness are being realized among a people. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is what we can experience now. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here. And the kingdom of heaven is what will be fulfilled and brought to completion when Jesus returns. We live with him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you are a believer in Jesus or you've been in church for any number of years, maybe you've heard this phrase, And the danger of the Sermon on the Mount can sometimes be its familiarity because it can file off the edge of how dramatic this teaching is. And so what I want to do is I want to ask two questions of this passage, two questions of this text. And we'll look at what this passage has to answer. So first, let's ask the question, how do you get into the kingdom? What does entrance into the kingdom of heaven look like? Well, Matthew 5, 3 teaches us, number one, if you're taking notes, write this down, that the blessed life begins by becoming a spiritual beggar. The blessed life begins by becoming a spiritual beggar. There's a few things that this means, if the blessed are the poor in spirit. This means, first and foremost, something about God. It means that God is holy. It means that God is not like us. He's on a different playing field. In a, in a few days, the Olympics will begin. There'll be some people who are awarded gold medals and silver medals and bronze medals, and they'll be on this podium, you know, the gold on top. Then you've got the silver a little lower and the bronze there. It's not the type of arrangement where, like, God is on top, he's got the gold, and maybe the angels got the silver, and we're in the bronze. That's not the arrangement. The arrangement is God is on a different playing field. He's holy, he's set apart, there's no one that compares to him. And God, as the holy one who created and authored all things, the universe, he spoke and created the universe into existence. This God who also actively sustains the universe with his word, this God gets to define and decide what is good and beautiful and right. And God who is holy has established in his word and has spoken his expectation for mankind for us, his creatures, and he tells us it's plain. He says, be holy as I am holy. This is who God is. He's set apart and he commands us as his creatures to walk in obedience, in perfect obedience to his holy commands. He sets a standard. He says, be holy as I am holy. But that's not the only thing that blessed are the poor in spirit. Says it also says something about us. You see, God is holy, but this passage is also teaching us that we're not holy. That I am not holy. That I'm to be a spiritual beggar means that I fall short of God's standard. That living in me and dwelling in me, dwelling in you, is this self centered desire and impulse to make everything about ourselves. That in every single one of us, whether you grew up in the church, whether you grew up an atheist, whatever your background, every single one of us are on a level playing field before a holy God. We all stand as unholy, imperfect people. Jesus is pointing this out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritual beggars. You see, many of us, if we could just have a conversation with Jesus, when he got done with the Sermon on the Mount, if we could work up the courage, we would say, Jesus, didn't you mean at the very beginning, like remember the whole Beatitudes section, didn't you mean blessed are the middle class in spirit? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, okay? I can be honest, I'm flawed, I, I got that, but I'm a good person, Like, I I try my best, sure. Like, I've got some challenges, but I help people. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I haven't done this. I I try and share my things with others. I mean, I'm a pretty good person, I'm middle class. But we aren't the ones that get to say the beatitude. And we aren't the ones that get to set the standard. No more than a student can go to their teacher and say, Excuse me, ma'am. I know that you said that this deserves an F, but according to my standards, I think it's an A. So can you change it? Because my mom will be very upset. It won't work. God has the authority as the Holy One to define what is good and right and expected of his creatures. And we all fall drastically and desperately short. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And if you've never had a moment in your life where that reality never messed you up, if you haven't yet had a moment in your life when the weight of that started to mess with you and overwhelm you and start to trouble you, then you haven't experienced the kingdom of heaven. See, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven until I become a spiritual Beggar, recognizing I don't have something to offer God by way of my good deeds, by way of my acts, saying, God, look look at all that I've done. I've got nothing to show him, to impress him. It's when I'm at the end of myself and all I have is the mercy and grace of God. When all I can say, God, I've got nothing to offer, I'm trusting myself entirely on your grace and mercy and love. That's the place where the kingdom of heaven begins. You see, Jesus, like us, the son of God, God become flesh, he experienced the difficulties of life. He experienced trials in life. We're told in the scripture that Jesus was tempted like we're tempted, that though he's God in the flesh, he experienced what it means to be a human. He he is now even exalted at the right hand of God as the God-man, Jesus Christ, And Jesus, having fully experienced the tests and temptations that come along with life, Jesus is also unlike us in that he met the test successfully every time. He never once failed. He never once gave in. He never once disobeyed God's good and right commands. And though Jesus is perfect, Jesus would go on and he would die on a cross He'd be crucified there, and on the cross, what's happening is he's taking the guilt and the sin and the shame that, that should be all worn on us. Jesus takes that on himself and he dies in our place. You, you say, listen, I, I hear you, but honestly, like my, my, my life, I mean, I know bad people. I know some messed up people, okay? I, I know this person at my job. I know this person. They do some shady things. I'm not like them. Here's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount. You read this sermon and you can't escape the reality that you fall short. Jesus says, hey, you've heard it say, don't murder anyone. Everybody in the crowd is like, yeah, that's right. Good thing. Haven't done that. I'm good. Jesus says, well, if you've ever had anger in your heart towards your brother, You've already committed murder in your heart. That the seed of murder comes from that same place that that anger and bitterness and vile, it's the same thing. It's birthed from that. Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Everybody in the crowd is like, well, maybe some in the crowd are like, haven't done that one. Jesus says, well, if you've ever looked at someone with lustful intent you've already committed adultery in your your heart. If you've ever looked and longed at that which was not yours to look and long at, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's the same seed that produces that same sin. Jesus will not let us escape this sermon without realizing we are spiritually bankrupt before God. And when we arrive in that place, we now become available to the good news. I want you to imagine this for a moment. I want you to imagine that you are standing on the shore of Miami Beach. Maybe for some of you, you don't have to imagine that because you were there like yesterday or last week or something like that. I want you to imagine you're on the shore and you're standing there at the beach. And it's one of those calm days, like typical beach here in South Florida, one to two foot waves. We don't get much surf down here. But I want you to imagine you're standing there, you look off in the distance and you start to see a wave forming far back. And this wave is building and getting larger and larger. And it's not like the other waves. I mean, this is starting to get significant. And you're kind of in a deer in a headlights moment where you don't know what to do to respond. And the wave gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's starting to get uncomfortably close. And you realize, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to make this? And so do you think, okay, do I, do I run as fast as I can in this direction? Do I try and get around it? Do I try and bury myself under the sand and wait and try and come what, what do I do? And the wave gets bigger. It's to this point where it's like this tsunami that's towering over the buildings behind you. And you're standing there, this tiny human, and compared to this coming force. And just as you start to panic because you realize, I don't know what to do. You notice someone step out in front of you, and someone who, while you're frozen in fear, steps up and stands right in front of where you are, and this person looks at you with this almost otherworldly strength and says, hide behind me. Your heart is stopped. You don't know what to do. He says it again, hide behind me, and you contemplate, do I? How do I hide behind? How would that help? What's that going to do, George? I should just run and you decide last minute. you know what? I'm just going to hide behind this person. They seem like they know what to do. So you hide behind this person and brace yourself, and the wave comes and crashes over. The water recedes back into the ocean, and you stand up and you look around you at the shore, and you see that person that stood in front of you, their lifeless body right there. And you realize you're alive. And that the only reason that you're alive is because that person stepped in and took the blow of that full force for you. You see, the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is that God looks at unholy and imperfect people like us who are incapable and powerless to save ourselves. And God enters into the human story in the person of Jesus. And he steps right up to experience and face the judgment and wrath that our unholiness deserves. God, because he's holy, he cannot just disregard sin. Because he's just, he can't wave some magic wand and be like, it's not that big of a deal. It's an offense to him. He upholds justice. He must punish sin and but God is also love so he sends his son Jesus to stand in our place and Jesus invitation to us is hide behind me and so many of us we think to ourselves I can fix it I can do it I I can be good enough I can run and escape this wave myself I'll try harder I'll be a nicer person I'll go to church more I'll do all of this stuff and it amounts to nothing Because it's until you come to the place where you're a spiritual beggar, willing to get on your knees and hide behind Jesus, trusting that he is the one who did everything that needed to be done to rescue you. And the story doesn't end with Jesus on the cross and buried in a tomb. Three days later, Jesus rises up from death, defeating our great enemy, Death and experiencing new life, and he's exalted and is reigning at the right hand of God right now, and he invites all of us to come and believe and receive what he's done for us. And there are some of you today, I believe, there are some of you today that you've been resisting Jesus for a a long time, that you've said no, or maybe for the first time it makes sense, it's as if God made something click, and today's the day where you're going to say, for the first time, I believe. I'm gonna trust in Jesus today. Listen, in a few weeks, we're gonna be celebrating baptisms where there are gonna be people who say, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. I believe there's gonna be some of us in this room watching online, some of us right now, that you're making that decision and you're gonna be baptized in a couple weeks because God is gonna rescue you. You see, it starts with becoming a spiritual person. Beggar. So if that's the entrance into the kingdom, let's ask the question, how do we grow and mature in the kingdom of heaven? How do we grow? Spiritual growth, number two, I want you to write this down in your notes. Spiritual growth happens when we become better beggars. How does one grow in the kingdom of heaven when we become better beggars? Jesus says, blessed. Right now, blessed blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs right now, the poor in spirit right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That the blessed life is for those who are spiritually begging. And the way that we grow and mature is by becoming better beggars. Uh, The other day I had lunch with uh, someone from our church, a dad who just recently took his daughter up to college, dropped her off uh, with his wife and And uh, they went through that whole emotional experience of just hoping and praying. I hope I trained you and gave you everything you need to know so that you can thrive. And he was sharing this story with me and it got me thinking about, you know, my own kids and what I'm teaching them and am I preparing them for that day when they're going to be launched into adulthood. And one of the things that parenting really focuses in on is we're trying to train and teach our children to become independent. Mom and dad aren't always going to be around. We can't do their laundry, or cook for them, or take their car to the gas station, or do their chores for them. We need to teach them over time how to do things for themselves. The great irony, though, is that when it comes to spiritual maturity, it's the exact opposite. That spiritual maturity does not come by becoming more and more independent, As though you, over time, get more and more things figured out. I don't need as much help anymore. I've got this spiritual maturity according to Jesus. He's asked the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, I'll tell you, the one who's like a child. The greatness in the kingdom of heaven is growing in dependence. It's becoming deeply aware of your need for God. Deeply aware of the fact that you need him more and more every single day. And so becoming like a child, becoming like this helpless child who perpetually needs their father to come through for them. And so at the same time, Christianity is both a rags-to-riches story and a rags-to-rags story. What do I mean by that? In terms of your identity, it's a rags-to-riches story. We are little tiny specks on a little speck in our solar system in a massive galaxy in a massive universe. We are tiny. And the God who created all of it has set his affections on you and calls you his son or his daughter and gives you a new name, calls you beloved. He takes you. I mean, it's a rags to riches story, but don't mistake. Spiritually speaking, it's also a rags to rags story. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We never outgrow our need for God's grace and mercy. It's not like you get to a point where you arrive and you've got it figured out enough and you know enough about the Bible and you've gone to church enough and you've taught enough lessons and you've led enough small groups and you've had all these experiences and so now I've got this. It's not the way it works. Listen how the apostle Paul puts it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a man who is an example of what it looks like to love Jesus, to follow Jesus. And Paul is having this moment of honesty where he's confessing this area of weakness. He describes this thorn in his flesh, an area of weakness. And here's how Paul describes it about what Jesus said to him as he's confessing this. He says, uh, verse nine, uh, 2 Corinthians 12. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in Weakness. Therefore, Paul concludes, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I'll celebrate them so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content. I'm delighted with, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong how do we grow in the kingdom of heaven? God graciously grants us these moments in our lives, these experiences where we realize newer and newer areas where we desperately need his grace and mercy. It's as if we go through life and we go through a season and God is working on us in an area and then we start to grow in that area and we're like, wow, this is great. This is awesome. Like, I haven't Messed up in this way, I feel like God is at work in me, and then something will happen, it's like, whoa. I didn't even know that was in my heart. Why am I so terrified about this? Why did one call all of a sudden make me start to doubt and question things? What, what, what's happening? God starts to open up and reveal just ways in which we more desperately need and depend on him. See, the kingdom of heaven, it has a key, In order to get in, you have to become, you have to humble yourself and become a spiritual beggar. You need to know you need a savior to call out to that savior to be redeemed. But it also has a code. It has a way of life for those who are a part of the kingdom. And the key and the code are the same. We beg, we depend, we lean on and rely on, we abide. For apart from him, we can do nothing. This is the way of Jesus. Around here at City Rev, we use the word to describe a disciple of Jesus. We use the word awestruck. A mathetase, a disciple of Jesus is awestruck by God. It means that we've had this encounter with this God who's holy and we've realized that this God who's holy has called us as his children into relationship with himself even though we're unholy. And it fuels this awe, this unbelievable sense like how could this be? We say with the apostle John, see what kind of love the father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. It's this awe that we're just overwhelmed by the reality that there is this holy God who has called us into relationship with himself. We're poor in spirit, so we go to God. And we beg and we plead and we say, God, if if you don't work, if you don't provide, if you don't come through, if your strength doesn't show off right now, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Jesus says the blessing is there. That's the kingdom of heaven. It's seeing God come through in that way. I want you to realize what this can do for your life. I want you to think about what this does and how it reframes your circumstances, you may be going through a, a, a time right now in your life, in your family, that's challenging you. Maybe a time that's overwhelming you. You're walking through what feels like a minefield. And oftentimes in this season, we very instinctively pray, God, please change this. Fix this. Make this go away. And you know what? God answers that prayer sometimes. There's some times that God miraculously comes through, sweeps in, and changes the circumstances. He does that. But what we often don't instinctively pray is, God, what are you trying to teach me right now? God, is there something that I've been trying to hold to with control that you are trying to help me release and let go of? God, what are you showing me? Is there an area in my life I'm not depending on you? I'm relying on my own gifts and my own intellect and my own abilities and my own know-how. I, is there an area you're trying to teach me? And so that you walk through those circumstances, not with this kicking and screaming, get me out of here, but with this walking with God in the valley of the shadow of death where the shepherd promises to walk with us and says, goodness and mercy is following you. This also reframes the way we view our sin. It reframes the way we view our circumstances, but it also reframes the way we view our sin. For some of us, the sin struggle we have, maybe it's an addiction. Perhaps it's a secret life that we've kept hidden from the people we love. A double life. Maybe there's something that we've insisted it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really affect anyone. I've got it under control, but you don't. And this idea, blessed are the poor in spirit, it reframes the way we view sin, sin in our lives. When we realize I I come to God not trying to pretend as though I've got it all together. I don't have it all together. I need his grace. I need his mercy. God, I don't have this sin under control. This addiction has power over me. I need you to break through. And Jesus invites you to come to him, not as a spiritually middle middle class, buttoned up, got everything put together, but come to you humbly. Come to him as a spiritual beggar. This also reframes the way we view ourselves. This reality that blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This reframes the way that we view others who don't know us. Who don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. It reframes when I'm at work and there's that person and they're describing and their life is falling apart and we start to feel good about ourselves. Or maybe that person, that teenager, that You know, you see that happening in that family's life and you look at your family and be like, well, man, my my teenager's not like that. Woo, good job, me. But blessed are the poor in spirit. It means that I'm no better than them. I'm not superior to them. I'm a beggar who found bread and they need bread too. And I know where they can find bread and I want to show them bread. And so with a heart of compassion, we go to them humbly. It reframes the way we view ourselves, not superior, not better than, but in humility, going to serve with compassion to reach out. You know, my two-year-old son, Levi, he's in an interesting season right now in his life. He's in a season where, uh, if you're a parent, you've probably walked through this, where he's convinced and is obsessed with saying, I can do it, Daddy. And so he'll be... uh, trying to get his seatbelt buckled in his car seat. And we're in a rush to go somewhere. And I go to try and get him buckled in. He's two. His arms aren't very strong. And so he's fumbling around and I go to help him. He says, I can do it, daddy. And I'm like, whoa. And then there's other things that he does where I don't step back. Like the other day, he was trying to pour himself a glass of milk with a full jug, one gallon jug of milk and he's carrying it and like if he opens it up it's going to spill all over the place so I step in and I say buddy you can't do it you can't do it, I've got it and then a few weeks ago he had a dirty diaper and I went to go change his diaper and it wasn't the fun kind of diaper to clean and he lays down he says daddy I can do it and he tries to push my hands away and I said buddy that won't work very well That's not what you want. You know, there are some grown men and grown women in this room watching online that you have insisted on and kept thinking before a perfect God, I can do it. I've got this, I can be good enough, I can do enough. I can do it. I don't need you. And today, I want to offer you the simple invitation from Jesus, your Savior, who looks to you and says to you, I want you to stop because you can't. Hide behind me. Hide behind me. Stop trying. You can't do it. You're not good enough. And I love you anyway. Hide behind me. Trust in me. I died for you. I gave my life for you. You don't need to try anymore. And so would you trust in me? You know, I believe that there are some men and women right now who you've been following Jesus for some time. Perhaps for decades. And there's this mentality that's crept in for one reason or another, and maybe you've been in a stretch where you felt like, I've got this thing kind of figured out. I've I've got this spiritual middle-class thing under control. I know I'm not perfect, and I try my best, and I believe in Jesus. I'm trying hard. But meanwhile, there's this area of weakness in your life that you've ignored, you've tried to hide, you've tried to step away from. God forbid someone find out about it. And God's invitation to you today as a Jesus follower is to come back to him as a spiritual beggar. Come back to him and say, Jesus, I can't. I've got this weakness in my life. I'm not strong enough. I need you, I need help. And that is a prayer your heavenly Father loves to answer. And so in a moment, when we close here in song, we're gonna sing. And for those of you who are Jesus followers, and there's an area of your life that maybe God has surfaced sometime in these last few moments, an area of your life of weakness that you would like prayer for. At the end of the song that we sing, there's gonna be some people who are up here at the front who wanna pray for you. It's a simple invitation. If you want prayer if you want someone to come alongside you, if you want the opportunity and the blessing of confessing your weakness, to experience the power of the kingdom of heaven, then I wanna invite you to come up here and receive prayer with whatever's going on. If you say, well, what's my friend gonna think if they see me walk up? Or what's my spouse gonna think? Or what's, what's everybody else gonna think if I come up at the end and ask for prayer? Well, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not about them. It's about what God is doing in your heart. So I'm gonna invite all of us, bow our heads and close our eyes. And first and foremost, I wanna offer up an invitation to those of you who have never put your trust in Christ, to those of you who have resisted, to those of you who have never believed. And if that's you, Maybe there's this tug and this war that's waging in your mind and heart and you're fighting it and you're fighting it and you think, I can fix it. I don't need this. I've done this before. And Jesus is calling out to you graciously, seeking to get your attention, saying, would you trust in me today? Hide behind me. His invitation to become a part of his kingdom. And if that's you, I wanna invite you to pray right now, quietly where you are. Pray silently to God. Say, God, today I'm done trying. I humble myself. I confess I need you. And Jesus, I believe you died for me and you rose for me. And today I say I wanna follow you with my life. Father, I pray for those who just prayed that, who had that moment, I pray that you would stir them up and nurture their faith. I pray for those of us in this room that have been following Jesus for as long as we can remember or for years and years, but there's an area of weakness that we need to just come to you humbly and say, God, I need you. Lord, may we be a people that's humble and willing to respond to the promptings of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would do great work across this room, across living rooms, all around the world, watching online. Would you do that work in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. If you made that decision just now to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, we just wanna say that is the most significant moment your entire life. And there's a simple way that you can let us know so that we can celebrate that with you. We don't like good news not getting celebrated. And so if you would grab the connection card that's in the chair back in front of you, you can go ahead and grab that, fill out your information, check the box that says, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. We'd love to come alongside you, give you a Bible, help you in this journey of following Jesus. You can do the same thing online by going to cityrev.org faith. You can follow up there and say, I put my faith in Jesus for the first time. Well, we're going to close by singing. And so what I want to do is I want to invite all of us to stand. We'll sing together. And then if you need prayer, you come forward when you're ready. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.